KWFM, South Tucson. The views of this program are not necessarily the views of KWFM Radio, its management, or its sponsors. The host is solely responsible for its content. Enjoy. Mission given to me by Woody Shaw, Sunship, Dizzy, and Billy Higgins, dedicated to pursuing a piece of our cultural heritage through interviews with my jazz heroes. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Welcome, everybody, to the Jake Feinberg Show on KWFM 1330 The Star. Great to have you on board with us today. And uh, pioneers were prevalent in the 50s and the 60s. Not guys like Lewis and Clark who chopped down trees, but guys that built up their chops musically and were able to play at the spur of the moment in any setting with any players. These music pioneers' mentality was helped by venues, multiple venues in every major city, so accessibility was not a problem. These pioneers of music were unafraid of pursuing odd rhythms and combining instruments that wouldn't necessarily be commonplace in a square setting. My guest today was one such pioneer. With Charles Lloyd, they became the first American jazz outfit to perform in the Soviet Union. He was a favorite of saxophonist Joe Henderson in a group that featured the likes of Woody Shaw, George Cables, Lenny White, and Tony Waters. He was also one of the founding members of the eclectic group, The Fourth Way, which I am currently obsessed with, which included Mike Knock, Michael White, and legendary Bay Area drummer Eddie Marshall. He has been an educator at the Berklee School of Music and Long Island University, and is a continual force in the field of music. Ron McClure, it's a pleasure to welcome you to the Jake Feinberg Show. How you doing, Jake? That's great to have you on board, man. I, I'm glad you could be part of it. Yeah. I, you know... Uh, it, it, it's sort of, I've, I've read a lot about, uh, you know, your career and it's like he had the most natural rhythm, uncanny rhythm. And I, I wonder how that early on, you know, in your youth, how you developed, how you got to have such good rhythm. Well, it's mainly, I mean, I teach at NYU. You didn't mention that. I've been there for 22 years. My director would be very upset if he didn't. I'm sorry. So he's currently. I mean, I, I listen. I'm 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 a Stony Brook guy, so I'm kind of partial to Long Island University. But oh, okay. NYU. I I there you go. There, like Twenty-two years. Number. We got it. Anyway, I mean, I think it's it's mainly through listening. You know, in in your environment. I mean, if you grow up listening to something and you're around people that are talking about it and listening to it and playing it, and you get a chance to rub elbows with those kind of people and get to do it with them, that's how you get it. I mean, they're really, I mean, you can listen to records and get it too, but I mean, you know, I was lucky I caught the tail end of the jazz scene. Uh, I mean, as a kid in the 50s, uh, you know, I graduated high school in 59, so I mean, there was a lot happening while I was in high school in jazz. I mean, Miles Davis and, you know, Train and, you know, every, I kind of missed like Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Max Rose, people like that. That was a little before my time. Right. So I grew up like listening, to, you know, to Paul Chambers with with Philly Joe Jones, Red Garland, Whitten Kelly, Bill Evans, people like that, you know, and uh, and I got to play with those guys because you know I came to New York and um, I was in the right place at the right time and I got got to do it. I mean, I try to tell people today how to you know that don't have that concept. I mean, that they really just have to play with people that have it and and get it through listening. A lot of my students don't really own records, never really heard, you know. I mean, they've heard Kenny G, but they haven't, you know, heard you know Paul Chambers. <laughs> yeah, and if 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 you listen to the music coming onto my show, I mean, it's like cheesy elevator music, and I'm looking for you know live at the lighthouse sixty. People don't. Uh, I just feel like labels have mucked up music so badly. Anyway, well, it's about business. It's about money. It's like government, <laughs> right? And you know, but you know, and it's true. I have to ask you quickly. You were born in New Haven, Connecticut. That's right. You know, 1941, November 22nd. Did, did you did you by chance ever cross paths with uh, Joe Porcaro, Dave McKay, and Emil oh Richards? My God. No, I'm serious because because those guys were like the trifecta. Those are the guys that I played with uh, in Hartford. Well, let's talk. And about when it. I was going to school, I, Joe Porcaro and I were the house rhythm section, 
at the, the High Blend Hotel, and we played with Dave McKay. And Dave McKay was the guy that turned me on to uh, working by Miles Davis. He said, you got to listen to Paul Chambers play on the tune four. That's the time feeling you need to get. Unbelievable. No, I That's mean, McKay, <laughs> no, I mean, I, you know, because I knew those guys were like, you know, they were, they were the the triumvirate that eventually made it out to Southern California, but I, right. you know, those are the guys who were probably the two most influential people. It's amazing. I talk about synchronicity that you would call their names. Those are the guys who were probably the two most influential people in my early development. And and, and aside from recommending tunes, talk about other ways that they were supportive of you. Well, I mean, they 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 turned me on to uh, you know, music I should listen to. They talked to me about my time and my choice of notes and my intonation and my sound. And uh, I mean, we're very supportive in every way. I mean, you know, they, you know, they built my confidence and they taught me tunes and, uh, you know, I mean, they were like my gurus. Do you chalk it up to, um, you know, we, we have barely even started your career. We're still in its infancy, but, when I look at Ron McClure, when I look at your career, uh, you know, how much of was how much do you account for, uh, you know, the hard work and the, and and playing with people and getting out there and just doing it, and then also the serendipity. Some people would call it timing. I tend to think that you guys are just part of this. this I don't know. You cross paths with 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 pretty amazing people. Yeah. Well, I mean, I caught the tail end of the jazz scene. I mean, you know. And the, you know when I graduated in high school, I went to Hart College of Music in the you know in the sixties and graduated in sixty three and came to New York. I mean, I mean Bill Evans Trio was still playing and Miles and you know Train. I went down to the Village Gate and heard Coltrane with Derek Dolphy sitting in and uh, Mingus and you know just I mean the real stuff. I mean I got to play with so many people that were still viable then. You know I got took Paul Chambers' place with Wynton Kelly Trio because wow. I was playing opposite. Went and Kelly Trio with with Wes Montgomery. I was playing with Maynard Ferguson's band, and Paul was like very ill then, and he didn't show up. So they, Jimmy Cobb, just hit a couple of rim shots on the snare drum. We we're all sitting there waiting to hear them, and he pointed at me with a drumstick and just signaled for me to come up there. And I went up there and like played with them, and they looked around and smiled. Same thing happened a month later at the Village Gate. Ron Carter was playing with them, and he was late. They hired me. And they took my number, <laughs> and a couple of weeks later, they called me and hired me. I mean, talk about serendipitous. I mean, wow. I mean, exactly. Being in the I right mean, place at the right time has a lot to do with it. I mean, there are a lot of great players that never got any recognition, you know, because they weren't in the right place at the right time, etc. You know, and maybe they didn't want it or I don't really know. Well, there was also, I remember talking to uh, the pianist Mike Wolf, and he, oh, sure. he, he told a really fascinating story about um, being in a club, maybe it was the both and, or I, I don't know, it was out in San Francisco. Played there, yeah. And uh, and uh, a, a cat came up to him, I think it was African-American guy, and he said, you mf you can't play worth nothing, you can't do nothing. And, you know, he really kind of, and he was obviously threatened, Mike could play, obviously, but it was a test. Mike said he went back to his house, I don't think he said he didn't leave his house for two weeks and then it, it took enough gall to get up and say, you know what? I'm not going to listen to this trash. I'm going to go out and play the music. And I wonder how many, because I mean, I, to me, it was, a, I, 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 even though there was a lot of love and, and it, it, the values were very different, I also feel like there was it, was, it was pretty competitive as well. It was competitive, you know, and there's also the, the, the <laughs> racial thing. I mean, I've had guys come up to me and say the same thing, you know, and Witten Kelly told me, he said, you wouldn't believe what I have to go through to keep you in my band because... <laughs> Because the brothers would say, how come you hired this white guy? And he said, well, come down here and play, and you'll know. He said, he, he told me he felt as comfortable playing with me as anybody else. And uh, then they would come and they'd say, yeah, you can play. Remember Lewis Hayes told me, he said, yeah, yeah, I heard about you. Yeah, you can play. We could actually play together. But I'm not supposed to talk to anybody like you. Because I come from Detroit. We're supposed to worry about how we look and, you know, and just play with And, you know, that element still, you know, exists. I mean, you know, anybody doesn't think so in this country. Just watch politics, you know. <laughs> we have a black president. And it's, it works both ways. And it's ridiculous, but it does exist. I mean, you know. Yeah, but for some reason, it's uh, it by the Neanderthals, you know, they, 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 tend, they don't think it's very hip that we have a black president, though. No, a lot of people just can't can't stand the idea. I mean, the Congress has been dedicated to destroying him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, what else? I mean, the man is brilliant. He's done a wonderful job, and he's they like he's failed, and their whole job is to destroy him. I mean, 
Meanwhile, nothing gets done because of that. I mean, what else is it? How did, how did in your mind, I mean, I don't think there's a, a simple answer, and I certainly don't want to spend a lot of time on it, but you were growing up, you know, like you said, you caught that tail end, the Philly Joe Jones and the, and the you know, and, and the New York scene. Um, you know, civil rights was percolating, but there was a lot of, you know, overt racism. But I, the, my question for you is, when did that cynicism start to seep in? I mean, it's it's clearly we're 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 emace- we're just totally uh, engulfed in it now. But when did we go from sort of this this uh, culture of uh, inventiveness, uh, uh, you know, even in, and especially in music uh, uh, and and opportunity accessibility to one of just basically saying like to a leader like Barack Obama, who by all accounts is a pretty moderate person with a beautiful family and a good guy. Uh, we want to tear down those kinds of people because they're too good. When did he get so resentful? Well, I think it's kind of always been there. I mean, I just think it, it just raises its ugly head at different times. I mean, it's certainly been true. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, I've heard about it since way before, you know, I mean, there were times when they, we couldn't have worked together. I mean, you know, literally right. in the South, especially. And I've seen it in the South. It's more pronounced. I mean, New York's place. You know, you don't see too much of that here. I mean, people tend to look at each other for what they do rather than, you know, what they look like. But, I mean, it's it's always been there. I don't think it suddenly changed. I just think that it, it just comes out every now and then, and uh, it's very unfortunate. But it's fear and ignorance. It's nothing else. It's I mean, people are people, and there's, most of my heroes were black and older than me. And uh, when I got to meet them, they were wonderful to me, you know, because they were into the music. I mean, it's the little, just the small people with small minds that are kind of stupid that deal with that because it's out of fear and ignorance. It's all fear-based. Exactly. And the, but also, let's go back to the, the black heroes, uh, people like Dizzy or, or Joe Henderson. Sure. Uh, those guys were not going to take any crap. They would actually be outspoken. Would they not speak out if they were not going to be compensated? Or, I mean, I know, for instance, uh, when, when uh, with, with Cal Jader, when he took his band out with Willie Bobo and Mongo, he really had to stand up for those guys because, you know, they, there was a lot of harsh treatment. It seems to me people were much more secure, be able to poke fun at their ethnic ethnicity or whatever it was, and at the same time also stand up for just blatant ignorance and fear. There's not enough in, in, in today's world. It seems people are just afraid that they're going to be destroyed if they speak up against this fear. Yeah, I see that. I see that too. I mean, I see that right now with the you know the, the Rush Limbo comments that he's been making about yeah, women. Yeah, hush bimbo, right? I mean, <laughs> I mean that's pretty stupid. I mean, but I mean, I mean, I knew Dizzy and I played with Joe, of course, and those guys were so far above it. I mean, I mean that it didn't exist. I mean, they saw people as people. I did went to Cuba with Dizzy Gillespie and Stan Getz in 1977, and you know I talked to Dizzy all the time, and he was just one of the guys. Joe Henderson was brilliant, and like you know he spoke like seven different languages. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was he would just call me up and talk to me for like an hour and a half at any time. You know, I mean, and he, he was the greatest to work with too. I mean, I mean, he's a wonderful musician, a wonderful man. What would you guys? Can I? You know, it's so cool that because a lot of like George Cable said that you know Joe was just really soft spoken. He would disappear after he was. Games. He but, was, but and he, he would just disappear. I mean, he was the phantom, and that's why they call him the phantom, because he'd see a sign that said San Francisco, he'd just go home in the middle of a tour. <laughs> he did that. I mean, you know, he did that with, I was supposed to go to Europe with him, and all of a sudden he wasn't here anymore. He, he just went home. He decided not to play the gig at the Vanguard that we had. What, what kinds of, I just, you know, really curiously, I mean, what kinds of, when he would call you up, what would you, what would you guys talk about? I mean, obviously he wasn't. We'd talk about music, and like, you know, he'd, you know, he'd say, well, have you heard this? And he would sit on the train in Europe, and he'd just play things. I mean, what do you think? I got this David Friesen record. What do you think about this? And like, what do you think about Mal Waldron? He only plays in the middle register. I mean, he plays great tunes, but he only plays in the middle register. What do you think about that? I mean, he would talk like that, and we asked, he won't know what I thought. These are these are the uh, behind the scenes stories that I just. I mean, I I can go to my stuff. I can go to my grave comfortable now. You know, I mean, this is the yeah, it's a real deal. I mean, I mean, I you know, I mean, I know these guys as people and friends. I mean, we we you know we shared cabs and like trains and. Sometimes even hotel rooms together, you know. I mean, and uh, I mean, it was great. I mean, you know, I mean, I feel I feel very lucky to have been able to play with people like Monk. I mean, he didn't talk to me a great deal, but I mean, he was great. And he would ask his manager like, "How's Ronnie doing?" Yeah, I like him, but he wouldn't tell you anything to me. I mean, he just you know, hung out with the Baroness. And, you, know. you know, you you you. Uh, I I have to to feel that you know that in some ways you must have even after all the gigs. 
you felt like you were actually helping society move along as well. I mean, well, I never it, quite thought of it that way. <laughs> you, I mean, exactly. But I, I mean, don't know. I, do, I was just part of it. It was just like it was my life. I mean, in one week's time, I played with three generations of Miles Davis's rhythm section. I was playing with Wynton Kelly and Jimmy Cobb. The afternoon, I played with Miles at the Vanguard. He didn't show up. I was playing with Joe Henderson, Wayne Shorter, Her- Herbie Hancock, and Tony Williams. And then I went on the road with Charles Lloyd to play with Jack and Keith. I mean, all within a, a week. And I just realized, holy cow, I actually did that in a week. I mean, wow, that's really significant. I mean, not that it's going to make me any money or give me any awards, but, I mean, to have been there, to have been able to do something like that, I mean, the reward is in the doing of it. Hey, as uh, the skipper Henry Franklin would say, that's legacy, baby. I mean, that's really, I mean, wow, what an opportunity. How many people can say that? I mean, not that, you know. That's I why mean, I do this. That's why I do my, that's why I do this show. when I figured it out. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, people are like, yo, you know, isn't it time, you know, like you got to make a move, you got to grow, you got to move into it. No, I don't, because then I got to sell out. And I can't well, do, I can't you do. You have to make a living, too, you know. And, uh, you know, now it's like, uh, it's about what can you do for me? And, like, you know, how, you know, how many, I get a gig and I say, how many people will you have? And I said, how would I know? Right. I mean, I don't know. I can, I'll get a band together, get the music together. I mean, I'm not a, you know, I'm not, you know, going to tell you how many people are going to come. How would I know that? I mean, I'm going to call people and say, are you coming? I mean, there are people that are really good at that. I mean, I work with Dave Liebman, who's probably one of the best organizers of people and getting gigs and doing things. I mean, he's amazing at how organized he is. Right. You have, I mean, to, I you have to be, you have to be organized, but, uh, you know, Listen, we're talking with Ron McClure, currently 22 years at New, uh, New York University. Fine institution. And I will never make that mistake again. <laughs> but uh, let's take a listen to some uh, clip of music here. And uh, this is Ron McClure with uh, a bunch of classic cats. We'll come back and talk about it, okay?
course, uh, I, the, the the first track that I chose, you're not really. Don't worry, man. We we are we are we are going to be firing up Rama. You know, first of all, just uh, who was on vocals? That was Michael uh, Michael White. Michael White was okay. So Michael White did the yeah. He did all that. Yeah, we heard we we, uh, Ebony Plaza. They called it, and I mean that was just two hundred boys without the you know without the white guys in the band. (laughs) <laughs> and, and the and the, the, Ebony, the Ebony what Ebony what Ebony Plaza was the title of that. It was uh, they wrote it together. It was a little uh, African kind of uh, piece. And so I assume that that he also played. I mean, he over he did the flute and the violin track. Who, no, I think they did it. I don't think they did any overdubbing. That's the way they did it. They played. Eddie Marshall played flute, and I mean he was sitting at the drums with you know with, you could hear the hi hat chomping away, and he was playing the flute into a mic. He wasn't using his hands. I mean, I think that was direct. We didn't do any overdubbing. You know, it's just these guys were the, the merry pranksters of, of music. I mean, it, it just, this is, did you, I was curious, you know, I, I, I was looking at some John Clemmer records. For, oh, yeah, I or, played with him actually for a while. I was figuring, because I saw uh, there was a couple albums out, live shows from uh, the, the Grove uh, in Los Angeles, something that he, Wilton Felder was on bass, but I'm like, mm. you know, it was Mike Knock and, and Eddie Marshall. I'm like, you know, th- what a what a hip group. And, and uh, in the two minutes we have before we go to the break, just let's start talking about how that how that all came to fruition. The fourth way. Yes. Well, I was playing with Charles Lloyd opposite them in Los in Los, Berkeley, California, uh, and uh, Peter Marshall was the bass player at that time. I was playing with you know Jack and Keith and Charles, and then that ended in '69. And um, I told Mike Knock, well, if you ever you know, need a bass player, I'd like to live in San Francisco. Well, I said, I'm on my way to Capitol Records to sign a contract. We need a bass player. You want to come? Oh God! Here we go. You know, Serendip- I, Serendipity. I, mean, I, I dropped out of New York. I went out there in 1969 and uh, stayed there for about you know four years. And it, and it, it seemed to me like you guys really clicked right away. I mean, it wasn't even uh, it, it didn't take any time at all. Well, it was so unique, unique and unusual. I mean, I mean, we're all like really. I knew Eddie Marshall from back east. I mean, I heard him when I was playing at the, the Highline Hotel. He was playing with Toshiko and Charlie Mariano and Gene Shiriko. I didn't and, realize uh, he was from he was Springfield. In, I, you know, I was from Hart and New Haven, so we were kind of like. Of course, he just passed away last year, unfortunately. And uh, and Michael White, I had played with Jerry Hahn with Jack DeJohnette. Well, in 1966, there was an Al Arabian. Jerry oh, I, I know it well. Uh, Noel Jukes, Jack DeJohnette, and myself. I, that's one. That was Michael when White. I first discovered you. Uh, was with. Uh, it was actually on. Um, uh, what was the name of that funky label? Uh, I can see Arhuli. Chance. Arhuli. Change, changes. Arhuli. Arhuli label. Arhuli. Yeah. Like I think I have a CD of changes, or maybe this. Jerry Hahn won't. Jerry Hahn did an interview with me, and I, I it fell out. The dictaphone fell out of my pocket on the Lower East Side, and he will never talk to me again. So he will never talk to you again, uh, Ron. We're going to do a whole lot more with with the mighty bassist Ron McClure. A lot more tunes with him in it. We'll come back right on the other side of the break. Hang loose. This is the Jake Feinberg Show on KWFM thirteen thirty, the Star. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. We'll be right back. CNN Radio, I'm Shelby Lynn. 36 people are dead and that number could climb as rescue workers in 11 states continue digging through the rubble that used to be homes and businesses. Severe weather swept through almost a dozen states over the past day. In hard-hit Moscow, Ohio, residents are telling scary stories. This woman survived, but says a local official didn't make it to safety. They was trying to get to the basement and didn't make it, and she got crushed. And her son was right with her, but he tried to dig a mountain. He couldn't do it. There's still a threat of severe weather in southern Georgia and northern Florida this hour. And all weather experts say almost 100 tornadoes ripped through almost a dozen states over the past couple days. Voters in Washington state are deciding who they want as the Republican presidential candidate in caucuses there today. There's 40 delegates at stake in the race. The most trusted name in news, this is CNN Radio. Mark Twain once said that the secret of success was making your vocation your vacation. And I can't think of anything I'd rather do than save folks money on their car insurance with Geico. 
I'm proud to have helped millions of drivers save and save big. Hundreds of dollars a year. Come to think of it, my boss would say, I'll to take a vacation. I'll probably go to the beach, get a little sun, see if anyone needs to save money on their car insurance. There I go again. For a free rate quote, visit Geico.com to see how much you could save. Geico. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Wow, we have so much we have to do around the house. Awesome. A reason to go to the tool mega sale at Sears this week. Fix the car. Up to 50% off all Craftsman Mechanics tool sets. Check. And the garage is a mess. Up to 50% off Craftsman Tools storage. Booyah! And the faucet is... Honey, are you okay? I'm just so excited. Tackle your to-do list at the Tool Mega Sale this week only at Sears. Hundreds of Craftsman tools on sale in one place. Craftsman. Trust in your hands. Exclusion supply. See store for details. When you were a kid, you had all sorts of toys. Toy cars, boats, trucks, entire toy boxes full of fun. Of course, you never really outgrow your toys, do you? It's just that now, instead of a box full, you have a garage full. Cars, trucks, boats, motorcycles, ATVs, and more. As you get older, your love of toys just gets stronger. So protect those toys the best way possible by switching to Allstate. An Allstate agent can help do the switching, paperwork, bundle all your policies together and even find you a bunch of discounts so if you love your toys make sure you protect your toys by making one call to an Allstate agent protect all your toys with Allstate find an agent near you at Allstate.com today subject to terms, conditions and availability Allstate Property and Casualty Insurance Company and Allstate Fire and Casualty Insurance Company and their affiliates Northbrook, Illinois dollar for dollar, nobody protects you like Allstate Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. One of the first things I wanted to do when I moved to Tucson was find authentic Chinese cuisine. After a tip from the Chinese Student Association, I headed over to Badar Chinese Restaurant. Well, it's been seven years, and I have never looked back. Located at 7321 East Broadway Boulevard, Badar has been a family-run operation since 1992. The award-winning chef produces succulent dishes from sizzling ginger chicken to salt and pepper shrimp. The thing that separates Badar from the rest is that the chef procures ancient oriental dishes with the exotic island flair of Taiwan. Most importantly, there are no gimmicks or razzle-dazzle at Badar. You won't find any flat-screen TVs or karaoke machines. Badar is a place to go enjoy good food and spend time with your family. It exudes peace and tranquility after a long week of work. So come down and check out Badar Chinese Restaurant. Hong Hao Chu, it's that good. Folks, this is Jake Feinberg. When it came time to decide where to buy my daughter a piano last year, the choice was easy. We got it at Hackenberg & Sons Piano Company. Located at 4333 East Broadway Boulevard, Hackenberg & Sons is Tucson's longest-running family-owned piano business. Run by three brothers and a son, they pride themselves on superior instruments and customer satisfaction. It's why they've been around so long. And it's why their pianos are used at the University of Arizona, Pima Community College, and many other prestigious institutions. So whether it's for your child, business, or yourself, when you buy a piano, make sure you go to Hackenberg & Sons. It'll be the beginning of a long-lasting partnership. For more information, visit them at HackenbergPiano.com. Even the ancient Romans knew that music can soothe the savage beast. But what if there's a beast lurking in your old stereo? Maybe it's popping static, garbled distortion, a skip in the record, or worse, dead silence. Stereo Hospital can restore smooth sound to your receiver, amp, turntable, CD player, or speakers. At the same Midtown location, 4044 East Speedway for 10 years, Stereo Hospital might be the last shop in town doing quick, guaranteed repairs on vintage and modern stereos. Owner Jeff Brucker has over 40 years' experience as an electronic technician, and he is happy to bring back the joy and memories only your music collection provides. Log on to StereoHospital.com or call 722-4610 or just bring that mean old stereo in today. Stereo Hospital at 4044 East Speedway, inside Metronome Music, near Alvernon, to calm the beast. In this day and age, people have a lot to protect. You want to know that when you're insuring valuable goods, you have an agent you can trust. Craig Pretzinger is that agent. For auto, home, and life insurance, the Pretzinger Agency is Tucson's most honest and flexible insurance company. Have off-road vehicles or motor homes? Pretzinger can cover that as well. Pretzinger Agency at 299-5810, located across the street from Sullivan Steakhouse on the southwest corner of River and Camp. Trust, compassion, and service. The whole package at Pretzinger Agency. Call 299-5810 or text QUOTE to 602-459-5533 to receive a no-obligation quote. If you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. 
Be a part of a new coalition with Jake Feinberg. The second half of my show starts right now. And I got the name uh, for that title, not from Eldridge Cleaver, but from Live from the Lighthouse with Joe Henderson and the bassist that's joining me today, Ron Clore. Ron, welcome back. Thank you. You know, uh, let's get to a track of music that you did play bass on and (laughs) come back and talk about it. Okay. Carga Cubana on uh, the album Ache, the Cal Jader album. Wow. I, haven't, I, I, I thought you had the wrong guy because I, I hardly remember that. <laughs> that. That is you. I mean, I, yeah, you know, I too did it, remember playing with Cal. You know, it's funny because it, it, Cal Jader, uh, to me, he, he was such an interesting cat because, like, this album, Aqua Dulce, is. Um, you know, he did it with the Escovito brothers and yourself and, and uh, Al Zuleika and guys like that. But, you know, even on the title track, I mean, I, Aqua Dolce, Cal doesn't even play a solo on it. He came into the date with a six-pack and asked the producer what they were going to do. He had no idea. <laughs> I mean, that's how just detached he was from doing that record. Well, was... I was just doing a session for Fantasy. I mean, somebody hooked me up with him. I, you know, we didn't talk or meet or us or anything. It was just a session, you know. What, do you, what did you, when was the first time that you sort of, uh, you know, played in a group that had additional percussion aside from the trap set? Gee, uh, good question. Uh, not too much of that, uh, actually. I mean, I remember I played with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, and we oh, yeah. had Al, uh, Don Elias played percussion. Uh, that was in 74. Um, and with Joe Henderson, uh, Tony Waters, I mean, he, I think he overdubbed some of that stuff, actually. The question, I, you know, I mean, when did, I'm I'm wondering the, the first time, because I know it's sort of, you know, obviously people can trace it back to Chano Pozo and, and Dizzy and and then uh, with Mongo and stuff like that. But, I mean, did you, 
did you recall like on the scene like catching a group and saying wow that's interesting they, they incorporated a conga drum or, or timbales you know because i mean you had, the, you had the escovito brothers this was 71 was when that album was made yeah that's definitely i mean when people ask me if i play latin bass i said no you you know you got the wrong gringo and that, that's not my thing. i mean I, I could do my imitation of it but i mean I just went and heard uh, the music of Kachow at Lincoln Center, you know, with the bass player that plays with the Lincoln Center Orchestra. It was wonderful, but, I mean, it's definitely not my thing. I didn't grow up doing that, you know. So, how, yeah, talk about, from a professional p- point of view, this is a great lead-in, how do you uh, play uh, an idiom of music that you are clearly, like you said, I'm not your gringo? Yeah, I mean, really, I mean, Latin music is, I mean, it's a whole other language. I had a hard time playing rock and roll. I mean, when I went with Blood, Sweat, and Tears, playing with a giant amp with a Fender bass, after playing with Charles Lloyd, I mean, or, you know, with or the fourth way, you know, playing acoustic bass, which is more of a free flow of consciousness. But, I mean, rock and roll, I mean, the bass players play patterns, and you have this electric instrument, and it's loud. It's, you know, it's a different language. It's a whole different thing. I mean, but I, you know, I love a challenge. I mean, I have a solo piano gig in New York where I play. I just came back from it today. I mean, I play solo piano like two or three days a week. Where, what venue? It's at a McDonald's, if you believe it or not, at World Trade Center. Oh, uh, you have to, and what, you do that every Saturday? I do, I do every Saturday and Wednesday. My girlfriend plays the other days, and there's another guy on Sunday. I've been there about eight years. They've had a piano player there every every week, every day for like the last twenty years or more. All right, I'm gonna this summer when I bring the family back home, I'm coming to see you at McDonald's. Definitely. I mean, that's my new thing. I'm playing more piano lately than bass. I mean, uh, it's, I mean, I teach. You know, I use the piano to play and you know, on the gig, and I use it on the, to teach and to write. And you know, I have some gigs coming up as a bass player too. But uh, it's not as much as it used to be. The whole scene is really slowed down. You know, as a guy, I wanted to ask you about uh because he's he was one of the early guys that i got into jazz with um and and not many people have worked with him and you actually studied under him was don sebesky oh yeah could you talk about what uh why what made don such a improvisational cat well i mean he was a master arranger and he i mean he played trombone with maynard ferguson's band which i did earlier i mean i you know known him a long time and i took his courses like 30 weeks and ron carter was in that class too and uh He's just a masterful arranger, you know. I mean, I mean, I you know, he did a lot of commercial arranging, and his course was mostly about re- recording and writing for the studio. It wasn't so much about stuff that I'm interested. I mean, I played with George Russell and Maynard's band was much more cutting edge writing. Mm-hmm. I mean, but he was more of a commercial arranger. I mean, he, you know, I never thought he was cutting edge terms of musical concepts. Yeah, improvisation was the wrong word. I just yeah, I don't th- I don't see him in that light. He's more of a, like a you know studio arranger you know. He he uh, he he did he seemed to catch on quickly, uh, and you could be a better judge than this uh, from an orchestration standpoint. Buying the jazz rock sort of fusion that was ha- happening in the late sixties. Yeah, well, he did that because I mean that's what the, that's what the companies wanted him to do, you know. And I mean, it's like all those the CTI recordings and stuff, you know. Um, I mean, it's kind of, you know, that's what was happening around that period in the 70s. I mean, people started to look to, to reach a wider audience, you know, so they started combining things. So a lot of it didn't really work too well, in my opinion. I mean, I was never terribly fond of it. Some of it did. Some of it was great. But a lot of it was just an attempt to try to make more money. In in your mind, like, when did that, In what was the first year where it was like all of a sudden, it, it 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 mattered more about if a limo was coming to pick up a big guy or you know the contra- when did contracts really come into play because none of you guys were getting rich playing at the lighthouse with Joe you'd go on tour you'd play on the road it was relatively inexpensive to stay in hotels maybe you even had to pay your own hotel I don't know but yeah I did I mean well Joe was complaining <laughs> that I mean he said it's you know it's hard to have a band because it just costs so much we had to bring instruments we had to bring the piano the drums the bass and the amp nobody had any to say I don't bring anything anymore because they have basses and they have amps and drums and piano people read everything nobody travels with instruments anymore especially since 9-11 it's just too much. It's too much of an expense, and then the hotels. And it's you know, it's really hard. People ask me why I don't have my own band. I said, "Well, sit down. I'll tell you." Because I mean, you know, first of all, I'm not box office draw, and it's you know, you, they want to make money. I mean, the business. I mean, think around '69 when the, when Miles went to Electric Music with you know Bitches Brew. Uh, I mean, everything started to change. I mean, he wanted some of that money. He saw Sly making, you know, and uh, he, you know, he wanted to reach a wider audience too. 
started doing Cindy Lauper tunes, you know, and you know, hiring like you know rock people, you know. I mean, that just played one thing. They didn't play like you know, like Ron Carter and Harvey did, you know. Well, and, and it's funny you bring that up because uh, you, uh, with Charles Lloyd, was maybe one of the only uh, jazz groups that played at the Fillmore West. Yeah, we played. Uh, that's it. I mean, and we weren't the first in rock. George Vacuum brought us, but he had brought Benny Goodman years before, mm-hmm. and probably Sonny Rollins. He managed both of those groups before we went in '67. But I mean, yeah, we played uh, the Fillmore. Charles didn't want to play in the saloons, as he called them. You know, we played large <laughs> venues and college concerts. You know, we used to play at Reed College in Portland, and you know, we did these big venues. We didn't do a lot of jazz clubs. We never played the Vanguard. We never worked in New York. Really we played the Village Gate. Opposite Miles once, but uh, you know we didn't play in the saloons. You know it was like he wanted to reach a wider audience, and he did. I mean, he had the kind of charisma to do that. I wish I had that. <laughs> you guys, it says here, uh, speaking of the, of the Lloyd Group with uh, Keith Jarrett and Jack DeJohnette, uh, who will be on the uh, show next week with Ron McClure. They were the first American group uh, to your group to play at a Soviet jazz festival. Festival, yeah. Yes, and then uh, you also appeared at the Fillmore. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I'm, I just, you know, in, in the remaining moments, I, I, uh, we have time here, but I wanted to play some more music because you really are the, uh, the bridge to the fourth way. And, uh, I, I, I've taken a, a tremendous interest in this group. Um, so let's take a listen to, to this track and we'll come back and talk some more. Thank you. 
as we fade out on the Eddie Marshall solo. We, I miss, uh, could you talk a little bit? First of all, my question is, what audience did Capitol tell Mike Knock to appeal to with that music? I don't think they did. I mean, I think it was the idea that it was a jazz violin, and uh, uh, John Paldino was the producer, and uh, he didn't have a lot to say in the studio. I mean, I didn't know him. He had produced, uh, you know, other records for Capitol, but uh, he just kind of sat there and let us do what we do. We did one one record in the studio in, in L.A. in the in the Capitol building, and he was just there. And uh, and the other one, the Sun and Moon, that's from uh, the Orleans House in Berkeley. Then we did a live record in uh, Montreux in 1970. I played electric bass. Uh, I played a fretless, a Honer fretless electric bass because we couldn't afford to bring the bass. And the Jocker Pistorius told me he got the idea for Fretless Bass from that record. And That's he played uh, me licks from that that he obviously knew. I mean, he studied all that. And I said, really? <laughs> it's it's so it's so classic because you listen to that. I mean, I don't even know. Uh, I'm not a musician, but I it just it seemed like more uh, <clears throat> consciousness, a stream of consciousness. Well, it's it's pretty free. I mean, <laughs> they were like some space cadets. I mean, that was out there. I mean, <laughs> I love. I mean that. Was, I mean that was out. The solo I played was just like you know off the wall. I mean I don't know. It was just like, I mean form. Forget about it. I mean like that started off as tune. But I mean that's what we played. I mean we we did a lot of free music and we played tunes too and we played some funk things and we played some standards. We did a whole eclectic thing. You know we did a lot of different things. But it was the idea. I think it was kind of a forerunner to the Mar Vishnu Orchestra. I mean with with uh, John Goodman. Violin player, in, you know, it's kind of the beginning of all that fusion stuff. Absolutely, you guys are the trendsetters, and and uh, <clears throat> let's uh, let's get a little bit more taste of it before we uh, come back because I want to finish with one final point. Okay. Our final, I mean, what what beautiful music, uh, you know. It, it just it strikes me, Ron, that it was at the time hip to be free form, and that, that's the whole problem with with music now is that everything has to be formed and and uh, calculated. And you know, people have an agenda they, they have to fit to. I mean, that was just really. I mean, I was enjoying listening to it even on the phone. I mean, it's it was just the way we played. It wasn't 
premeditated at all. I mean, it was very open and free, and that was the beauty of that band and the Charles Lloyd band before that. I mean, it was and the band I play with now. Quest is very much like that. We played, I and mean, we actually made a whole record called "Of One Mind" on CMP. That was all free. We didn't have any tunes at all. Probably the best thing we ever did. You know, in, as you move forward, <laughs> we've talked a little bit about it, but you know, how are you going to? Uh, b- being that you you went through this sort of golden era and now you're still, how are you going to keep your sanity as you move forward? Forward the the McDonald's gig. What else have you got going on? The, the band you have. Go ahead. Well, I play with Dave Lehman Quest with Richie Byrick and Billy Hart, and uh, I just made. Uh, speaking of violin, I, I've been recording with this guy Gabe Tarasiano. He's 18 years old. He goes to NEC and, and Tufts in Boston. He came into NYU last year, and I grabbed him and made a record. It's it's called crunch time it just came out on steeplechase we did another one called the uh, ready or not which will be out next year uh steeplechase uh some young guys from nyu uh, students and grad students but i mean i you know it's i have to make projects for myself i mean my phone doesn't ring i don't get calls from herbie hancock and charles lloyd and monk anymore and people like that right i'm 70 years old and, uh, you know, the kids are doing a lot. And, like, you know, my role has changed. And uh, uh, it's a little confusing right now, actually, to to see where I'm going in terms of keeping the music going. I mean, I you know, I you know I don't go out and get in line with these kids to get these nickel and dime gigs that exist out here. They're places that have music, but I don't really want to go back to that, you know, playing for the door. No, and you did that. that I was, did that, yeah. like, 40, 50 years ago. I mean, you know, that's what all the kids, well, let's go get a gig. You can get a gig and, you know, end up costing you more money than you could make just to do it and uh, just to do it and play for people who aren't listening, too. Uh, I mean, doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, I just got a couple tours. Quest is going to Europe in October. We're playing at Birdland in New York next February. And uh, we have a record we just made, uh, which may or may not come out. I don't know. It's uh, it's a different world now. You know, it's... Uh, I have no idea. I can't really answer your question. It's just you don't have day. to, Ron. I just, I, 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 I mean, I can't. <laughs> I in, wish I knew. In the, uh, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, you've been a hero of mine for a long time. Well, thank you. And nice uh, and uh, you know, as long as my show stays on the air, uh, history will be preserved and hopefully build a bridge uh, to the future before we in, in, uh, collapse as a society. <laughs> so, well, yeah, I mean, I hope we don't, but I mean, that's always possible. It's all, all ties in with what's going on in the world, unfortunately, with the economy right now. It's really killed the music business. No, people don't buy CDs anymore. They don't go out like they used to. They stay home and go on the internet and download things. Well, we got to run, Ron. Thank you so much for taking the time. Cool. We'll Thank talk you. to you soon, brother. Jay. Thank you, man.